In this bonus episode of the Grown Up Rock Podcast, we invite House of Lords lead singer James Christian to come on and tell us all about the new album, New World, New Eyes. So kick back and crank that shit up. Open up your hearts and let me in. Maybe take me up Oddly enough, I was never an Angel fan. Never heard of them when I was growing up. So when Greg Jafria put together Jafria, it never really hit me that he had a career before that. I just thought, hey, it was a new band. I first got into Jafria after I met Greg's parents at a local Biloxi mall before a Kiss concert. Greg's parents were really, really sweet. They were really nice. They were there as guests of Gene Simmons because, of course, Gene and Greg Jafria had a relationship. Angel was managed by Bill LaCoyne at one point in time. So this is kind of an interesting start to my fanhood of House of Lords. Uh, I know this is a House of Lords episode, but I think it's important to know where the band came from and my history with the band So it all started with the chance meeting with Greg Jafria's parents at a mall in a small Gulf Coast town, because that's where Greg Jafria was from. So fast forward to House of Lords debut album. By this time, I knew who Greg was, but I didn't know anyone else in the band at the time. I remember thinking that the album was a bit too keyboard laden for me. I like a little bit heavier guitar sound, but I loved the singer's voice. Then with the release of Sahara, I was all in. I absolutely loved Sahara and thought the cover of Find My Way was one of the few cases where the cover was actually better than the original. So good. So now with the release of New World, New Eyes, the band's 10th studio release, I'm excited with the opportunity to talk to James Christian, that singer that sold me on the band 30 years ago. So let's get to this conversation with James Christian from House of Lords. Take it away, James. Hi, this is James Christian from the House of Lords, and you're listening to Growing Up Rock Podcast with Stephen Michael. Out of the ashes, a new sun will rise. We'll raise our glasses to a new
Welcome to the Grown Up Rock Podcast, James Christian. How are you, buddy? I'm doing fine. Trying to stay healthy. Going a little crazy here with all the uh, social distancing and not being able to be close to people. I hear you. I want to get into the new album, New World, New Eyes, that came out June 12th. But before I do that, let's talk a little bit about the history of the band. Sure. I think most House of Lords fans know you came to the band through Chuck Wright after you sent in a tape uh, for the Quiet Riot gig that ended up going with uh, Paul Shortino, correct? Correct. My understanding is there were a ton of singers in the running for the House of Lords gig. Do you remember any of the other singers in the running for that gig? Um, There was one gentleman, I believe his name was Zeus. (laughs) He was a Ford model. And he was the like the last person I had to go up against, and it was kind of intimidating because you know, he, you know, he was definitely a statuesque type of uh, you know six foot guy with long blonde hair. The saving grace was Gene Simmons liked my voice better. <laughs> so that's all I can say is I was in the right place at the right time. That's crazy. <laughs> so you put out the first record. You guys get great traction. And then with Sahara, it seemed you guys weren't in the perfect place with success of Doll MTV and a decent tour behind you. But mm-hmm. then Ken and Chuck leave the band. Do you feel this stopped the progress of the band at the time? Well, it actually didn't stop the progress. I, I, I wish that Chuck and Ken were still with the band. I mean, I'm the type of person who loves it when bands stay together and become one one entity. But in this particular instance... Uh, so when Sahara ended, we were out of a record deal. We didn't have our record deal with RCA, and we were shopping for a new deal. And at that time, this gentleman from Polygram, uh, Victory, uh, Phil Carson, who was responsible for signing Led Zeppelin, had his own label here in, in the States. And he loved the uh, demos that we had, and he only had one stipulation, and that was that we hire the drummer that he wanted, which was um, Tommy Aldridge. They were actually um, best friends, in, I guess, in Palm Springs. So, you know, I wasn't really happy with that decision to do that, but um, it was a business decision. And the band had already not played or even seen each other for eight months. So that transition there. The other transition with Chuck Wright was different. There was a falling out between Chuck and Greg Jafria. So that replacement was going to happen one way or the other. Wow. Again, not something that I was happy about. But at that time, I'm the new, still the new guy in my career. I mean, I had the first two albums with House of Lords and on to do my third. And all of a sudden, we had all this turmoil happening. So 
you know, it didn't stop us from making a great record, but it stopped me from having great relationships with uh, two guys that I admire still today. Yeah, well, I certainly understand that. I've re- I've interviewed some folks in the past that were part of Jafria, and you know, it seems like an ongoing theme with things that Greg Jafria is involved with. And it's not. I'm not saying one way or another. I'm just saying this is what the perception is. So yeah. It is what it is. Yep. It happened then. And, um, you know, you, we look back at it now. And uh, you're right. There are reasons that things happen. And they seem to, um, you know, I, there, there was a history of a lot of people leaving in the Jafria era, Angel and all those others. But I'm not going to point fingers at anybody. I had a choice. I could have said no. And uh, then we'll just not do the records. Yep. But I was a hungry musician and wanted to continue in my career. So Understandable. So Sahara turns 30 this year. Any plans to re-release the record or do the album in its entirety when concerts eventually start back up? Well, it'd be, it would be wonderful to, um, to do concerts. Uh, as far as re-recording it, I wouldn't touch it, only because everything that I did on that record, I wouldn't do better. I mean, I would do a, I would do a version of it, but there are certain records, you, you know, like that record, the first three records, I would say, the first three albums I did with HOL were the probably the height of my singing career. Everything else afterwards was still, you know, still strong as far as I, I feel as a vocalist. But the level of singing that I was able to do there has not been able to, you know, I've never been able to achieve that, to do it today. If I had to do Demon Down today or... Uh, Hard on the line, which were like, you know, a, a musician was like, well, that's a high D. <laughs> yeah, that was a high D, man. To me, right now, that's like, you know, a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> Completely so, understandable. Yeah, I wouldn't think yeah. that you would need to re-record Sahara. I was thinking yeah. more along the lines of re-releasing with, with maybe bonus tracks or remixing or something like that. I wouldn't, re- I wouldn't re-record it. Yeah. If I did an album and I, and I look back and I listen now and say, man, I wish I had another shot at that, I might do it. But those three records, they were done by people like Andy Johns, David Thoner. These mixers were and producers were top of the line. So yeah. even touch their work is sacrilegious, in my opinion. I mean, it's just they knew so much and they still know so much. They're still in the business today, with the exception of Andy, who's passed on. But records that I do now and that I do in my home, I literally can go into my computer, find my files, and do another vocal if I wanted to. You know, that's how easy it is today. It's not the same. We were doing tapes. I got stacks of tapes of recording. You know, you have to you'd have to go into a studio and bake the tapes because they've been sticking together for the last twenty five years. I mean, it's probably a a real challenge. Yeah. Now, now both you and your wife are singers. Do you have a vocal booth there in your house? Yeah, I got a whole studio here. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we have um, the Pro Tool setups with everything that we need, and the one investment we made was a you know a really great mic that we both sound good on. So that is you know the go-to microphone uh, that as long as you have a great microphone, and you lay down your even if they're demos, because you always sometimes your demos become your leads. It happened to me on Remember My Name, uh, What's Forever Four. I mean, I can name four songs that my demo ended up being the lead vocal. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah. House of Lords had a great history of writing catchy melodic rock tunes. The band had Jeff Kent 
come in for a couple of records to help with songwriting. Was Jeff a Frontier suggestion or something else? No, he was one of my um, one of the people in my early days before I got signed to RCA Records. I was working with Jeff on. Um, he was paying me to do demos in New York City. I would go into New York, do a couple of his songs, you know, and that would be it. So our relationship happened then, and then we uh, through the years we never kept in touch till after the House of Lords um, cycle with the first three records, you know, there was a, a period of maybe eight years where I didn't really do anything. That's when Frontiers approached me and asked me uh, to do a House of Lords record. And then I said, well, let, you know, it sounds promising. I, I want to see who I'd like to work with on it. Jeff Kent came to mind because I just happened to be listening to some of the stuff we did. So when we got to do the project, I told him, I said, we're, we're going to be up against people comparing the first three albums to whatever we do now, eight years later. And he said, well, let's go for it. Let's do it. We wrote World Upside Down in maybe two to three months. Yeah. And that got great reviews. There was one record in between there, by the way, called Power and the Myth that did not get good reviews. And that one was... I wouldn't call it a mistake, but I didn't even have any input on that record whatsoever. And as I was doing it, I was wondering why we were changing the sound of House of Lords to almost like go with what the uh, modern music um, was happening. I can't remember what year it was, but I know that we were trying to not sound obsolete or old. Yeah. And I thought that was the wrong thing to do. You did what we did in the, in the 80s, and that's what we should have been doing, just with better sonics. That's what I ended up doing with House of Lords. I always agree with that approach myself. Yeah. With all the changes over the years in the record industry, how do you approach a new House of Lords album? What do you do differently these days opposed to, let's say, the 80s or the 90s? Well, the, the, now it, and the songwriting is not done in the same room as we used to do. Mm -hmm. we literally, in the first three albums, we were all in the same room writing as a team. It's all well and good. There were sometimes, you know, a couple of people might be lazy doing nothing and still get credit for a record. That's just the way it was. You know, we were a band. Now, Jimmy Bell will send me a track. If I like the track, I'll start working on it. If I don't, it's, you know, it's his to do what he wants to do with it. So the writing is more, we're segregated. The only main focus of the writing happens here where I work with melodies and, and lyrics with other collaborators, but the nucleus of the song will happen here. So if it gets by me and, and, and we do it, put the vocals down, and after I hear that, then the guys will finish the song and you know do, the, do their parts that they want to have on the, um, on the album. But the demo part has to you know pass a lot. Of, I listen to it maybe a hundred times before I will even say, that's the, you know we're going to use this song. Because I don't know sometimes. I'll write something and love it. And then a month later, I hate it. Right. So You like to live with it for a while. You have to. Yeah. You have to live with anything. And that way you'll know if it stands up to you, the guy who wrote it, sang it and everything, if you can actually listen to it, just say, oh, this is still got it, still works. So you go with it. And you still, I mean, after all of that, you'll still get reviewers go, I hated this song. Or <laughs> why did they put this on the record? That's, you know, that's typical, but that's what you get through, you know? Yeah. People are always going to like what they like. They either like it or they don't, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. I even think we have House of Lords people out there that just purposely go online to trash us because they just don't <laughs> like us, period. You know, but it's like, that's my conspiracy theory as to why people don't like the record. But You know what? I never to this day understood that. And it happens even in the world of podcasting. People will go on and they'll hate an episode or they'll hate something just mm-hmm. to what seems like to hate. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, just, it's what really amazes me is they have enough time to actually uh, have the energy to go out and do that. Like they get something from it. I don't understand it either. If I don't like something, I just don't like it. You know, it's not like I'm going to have to get on Facebook and write it out. Well, and you just don't <laughs> you just don't say anything. If I don't like a particular song or an album or a band, mm-hmm. I usually just don't say anything, period. End yeah. of story. You know, unless somebody reaches out and asks me, what do you? Do you like this new song? Nah, I don't really like it. You know, mm-hmm. let's talk about the new album, New World, New Eyes. What's the story with the title of this record? Well, here's the thing. New World, New Eyes was written prior to any of this that's going on. COVID-19 rise. I mean, so the last reviewer um, I spoke with was saying that, do you have a, do you have a sixth sense or do you, uh, you know, I think, no, I do not. This was written, it could have been written at any time in, in our, in our existence because all we were talking about is the destruction of the world in different ways, whether it be through wars, whether it be through famines or whatever it is that goes on in this world, there might be a time when we have to rebuild it. And all we were saying is, you know, out of the ashes, a new day will rise. We'll raise our glass to a new world with new eyes. When it comes, when the time comes, when things get bad, we're going to have to rebuild. We're not saying that's going to happen. We're just saying that, you know, look, we're, we're that kind of a, of, a, of a world where, you know, humanity will always see the best and recover. That's all it meant. Yeah, because, I mean, it's funny because it seems like, the record, at least uh, the first two songs on the record, are very poignant with uh, today's what's going on in the world today. I mean, yeah. you know, both Change and mm-hmm. uh, New World, New Eyes, both great songs, but both very current, I guess, is the is the right word. Right. Well, yeah, Change, a different type of uh, lyric than uh, the New World, New Eyes, although Change happens to be about well, not specifically, but sort of about drug abuse and what it's going to take for people to change. Uh, you know, there's a line in it, uh, can't live by the needle when the sweetness goes sour. And we use that as, you know, one of the themes that being that you can't live your life shooting up and expect things to just, you know, get better. It's going to go sour one of these days and change has got to happen. So that's, uh, you know, a different message, but at the same time, a message, which in a, in a sense is a good thing, a positive message. What's it going to take? I think people respond more to positive messages than uh, than the doom and gloom. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it all depends on how you approach a song and people take different things away from songs. They take different things away from the lyrics. But, you know, that's right. definitely a way to approach it. Now, is one of the first songs that the record label put out there was Chemical Rush. Is that also in that area? Does that also address that? Or is that something completely different? Completely different. A Chemical Rush is a song 
a chemical rush being there is a, a um, an actual hormone or I, I guess you would call it a hormone that the body releases when it is excited, when it is sexually excited, and they call it a chemical rush. So the song is all about a man who needs a chemical rush. And so it's really a um, kind of an, an, a, a 21st century way of saying, I'm hot for you and, you know, without being so 80s. You know, some of the titles we had for songs like Hot for T-Shirt and stuff like that. It was a little bit more sophisticated way. Yeah, well, I'm not a sophisticated person, so I like Chemical <laughs> Rush, and I like that kind of Chemical <laughs> Rush. <laughs> right, so that way you get this, you know, and that's why how the end, uh, end of the chorus is, I need a Chemical Rush. And what we did is we incorporated females to sing the choruses so that there was no bias here. We both want it, you know, so... <laughs> And that song really caught on with a lot of people. They just love singing the choruses. And um, they kind of get the whole thing with the Flint Axe or a mobile phone. Even when we were primitive, we were still <laughs> needed a chemical rush.
Yeah, I like it. That's a good tune. I really enjoy that song. That was uh, one of the first ones I heard off this new record. So, so do you happen to have a song on this record that speaks to you or that you're really excited for people to hear? Well, for me personally, uh, because I'm a ballad guy, I love to sing ballads. If I could have had my druthers, I would do a whole album of it. Probably wouldn't go well because, you know, it's all down key, but perfectly you and I is a tribute to how I feel about a perfect relationship. And um, as corny as it might sound, I think that it really helps you in life to have that kind of security and bond in your life. It keeps you strong, it keeps relationships strong, and makes for better children when you crank, they can grow in a strong family environment. So all of those things are happen in that one song. So to me, that makes a, it really moves me. That's good. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what about on the rock side of things? What about one of the up-tempo or the rockers on the record? Is there anyone in particular you're... Yeah, there was a song called One More, which we did, which lyrically I loved because I always related to being sometimes... Well, I remember a situation in my life where I was the person looking on the outside of an, an inside relationship between two other people where I was always hoping that I would have been the person that was in the relationship. So what I was watching, what you're watching is an abuse from one of the people, the man to the girl. And what you're saying to this man is you do it one more time and this girl's going to be gone. So he's basically just warning the guy, you better treat her better. There's abuse going on. And so one more becomes the song of being on the outside, looking in, and hoping to rescue the girl that you actually love. That's awesome. I wrote myself yeah. a bunch of little notes out to the side of each one of these songs because I've had, I've had a few days to spend with the record. And uh -uh. Uh, next to one more, I wrote, killer up-tempo song. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so hey, well, You know, we've got, we got the cheap trick comparisons, and, and I do get it, uh, but they have to remember I spent almost a year and two months with Cheap Trick on the road. So we and we actually recorded one of Rick Nielsen's songs on the second album, Sahara. So when I hear a melody, there might be a, a moment there that I was thinking of Cheap Trick, and and I'm sure that you know things happen. Especially, and not only that, there's a collaborator on that song, Mark Spiro. If anybody is going to uh, you know look at it as a similarity, we both were very Cheap Trick pro. Fantastic. James, you've been awesome. I appreciate your time. Is there anything I did not ask you about or that you wanted our listeners to know? Oh, you know, there's so many years. You, you got a lot of it. And, and if they need to know any more, they can just call me. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. Go out, pick out the new House of Lords record, pick it up. Uh, it's a great record. Thanks again, James Christian. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Smack like that.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.